The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are ready to focus and concentrate, that we are in fellowship, ready to be taught by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, who is our guide and who is the one who helps us understand Scripture. So let's bow our heads together. A few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer. Father, we do thank You that we have the privilege to study Your Word today, that, that we can uh, be taught and we can understand it by means of God the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us. Father, we thank You that He guides and directs us and He brings to our memory the things that we have learned, that He continuously intercedes for us and prays on our behalf that we might grow and mature as believers. Father, we thank You for the Old Testament, all that we have there, the tremendous doctrines and implications of the statements and events and how they teach us of your continuous grace and redemptive work in human history. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray that you would help us to understand them, see how they uh, relate, apply to our lives, and transform our thinking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12. One through three. This is our starting point this morning as we continue our study, our survey of orienting to the Old Testament. One of the things I want you to keep in mind as we go through this study is that it's not merely a rehearsal of the sort of what I would call the Sunday school stories, the basic events and people in the Old Testament. What I'm trying to do is not just is to go beyond that a little bit and to help you understand the significance of the purpose of these events. You see, these are not just random stories, different events or biographies of people, but the writers of Scripture themselves wrote a sort of editorialized Scripture, sort of a theologized, I mean, editorialized view of history, sort of a theologized view of what was going on at that time. This is God's perspective on human history so that we can understand His plan and His purposes and how He is working out His purposes for mankind. Now we have seen, I haven't emphasized it as much, but I want to bring it out some this morning, that the unifying principle of the Old Testament is the kingdom of God. This is the overall principle. I'll develop that some more as we go on, but it's the development of the kingdom of God and the uh, intrusion of the kingdom of God into human history. We started off back in Genesis 1 and we saw that when God created man, He created him in His image and according to His likeness. And that phrase in the Hebrew implies two things. First of all, that man is in the image of God, but is also to be the image of God. And an image is a representation. So man is created a certain way immaterially as well as physically in order to be the image of God. He is, to, he is the image of God in order to be the image of God. Does that make sense? He has created a certain way. He has certain 
characteristics in his soul that reflect God, but his purpose, he is that way to fulfill his purpose of representing God and ruling the earth. He is to exercise dominion over the earth. He is to rule over the earth. He is to subdue the earth. We looked at all of that terminology, and yet man abdicated his role as the king of the earth, so to speak, God's vice regent over the earth, when he disobeyed God and violated the prohibition in the garden and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At that point, Satan became the prince and power of the air. He took over the rule and operation of the planet because it has now fallen, And so what God is doing is working just as He did in Genesis 1-2 where we saw the picture of divine judgment on the earth in darkness, tohu vabohu, the churning waters of the deep on the earth. Just as we saw that was judgment and then the Holy Spirit of God came and moved upon the waters and we saw the beginning of God's redemptive activity. We see the continuation of God's redemptive activity after the fall of man. And that's really the rest of the story of the Bible. It is God's work to restore the kingdom dominion of man to man. And ultimately that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, his undiminished deity and true humanity. So he comes back as the son of man, the greater son of David, and he rules and reigns on the throne of David in Jerusalem during the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. And that fulfills the ultimate purpose of God in creating man back in Genesis 1, 26-27. So that gives you the overall picture of God's plan and purposes in human history. Now in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have seen that God is in the process of redeeming man. But before we get there, let's go through some of our review of the overall structure of the Old Testament. First five books we call the Pentateuch or the Law. Law is how... Torah is usually translated. It's not the best translation for Torah. Probably the best translation is instruction. This is God's instruction to the nation Israel on how they are to live, how they are to operate, how they are to have a relationship with Him since He has called them out to be His specific people on the earth, His representative. They are to be a kingdom of priests. So the law is His instruction. Another good word to translate Torah is just the word doctrine. Because doctrine means teaching, instruction. So this is the first five books of doctrine, you might say. The books of the law. Moses wrote those for Israel while they were on the plains of Moab just prior to entering into the land in 1440 B.C. Then we have the historical books. The theologized or editorialized books of Israel's history, giving us God's divine perspective on history. See, all history is editorialized. Now think about that a minute. I don't care who you read, from Thucydides, Herodotus, all the way up to uh, somebody in the present, such as Paul Johnson or some other modern historian. All history is the writer's interpretation of the events, even if they just list facts, because they can't list all the facts. So even in a listing of important events, we all see this recently, what is it, the um, VH1 has put out the top 100 rock and roll hits of the, of the 20th century. And it's a great controversy if you ever watch TV and pay attention to these things. So why wasn't this song included? Why was this song included instead of the other? So it always represents, anytime you make a list, even a list, it's not just bold-faced facts. It's going to represent the author's taste and opinion and something's going to be included, something's going to be excluded. So even a list of key events in the 20th century, you can't list every event and they will reflect the person's orientation to reality and in some sense reflect their view uh, and their value system. So all no history that you read is brute fact. You know, that's one of the great myths is that history is somehow neutral. History is not neutral. History is the historian's perspective and included within any history. And I had to take a doctoral course on historiography and had to read about 40 different volumes of, of history, church history, secular history. And in every one of them, I had to be able to tell what the author's view of history was, what the basic causations were in history, where they saw history going. Was it cyclical? Was it linear? Was it random? What was it? Was it Marxist? Was it... Uh, uh, positivist? Was it somehow Christian in one way or another? 
every single history is written from somebody's viewpoint. So what we have in the Bible is God's view of history. And history is the outworking of God's plan and purposes. So it's on the basis of understanding the Old Testament and digging deep into it that you can understand what a true philosophy of history is supposed to come to. This is one of the things that I like about the first 11 chapters of Genesis is it introduces us to so many so many different concepts in just sort of a seed form. We have, of course, the divine institutions, uh, human responsibility, but what are the implications of human responsibility? It has tremendous implications for law, for government, for politics. Not only do we have... Um, the institution of human volition, but then later we'll have the institution of human government and individual nations. So the first divine institution was human volition. The second is marriage. The third is family. This provides tremendous orientation and foundation for developing a biblical view of society and social interaction. If you don't start with what God says about society and the purpose of man, Genesis 126 gives us a basic anthropology. That's your starting point. But see, modern man, in his wisdom, deifying his own experience and rationalism, goes out, and you take a course in college on sociology, anthropology, any of these things, they start where? With human experience. They go out and they, they evaluate everybody, or they, they uh, have a questionnaire and survey everybody, uh, draw all this data, and then start drawing conclusions. But they don't have a vantage point of an absolute in order to properly evaluate the data. So the Bible gives us that starting point of objectivity so that you can begin to properly evaluate the data. Otherwise, you really don't know what's absolute or what's not. For example, let's say you go outside and you like ants. And I remember when I was a kid, it was real popular for everybody to get these ant columns. Then you set those up, and it's probably still popular for kids to do that. You start watching ants, and you realize that there's one female ant that's dominant and runs all the males. And there's thousands and thousands of male ants, the drones, and the workers, and the rest of it. And so you could extrapolate from that that probably a, that might be a good model for marriage in society. You could do other things. But the Bible tells you how to look at nature and what to choose and what not to choose. It says, look at the ant, see how it labors day in and day out. And it uses the ant as an analogy to build a biblical philosophy of work and labor. But it doesn't say that the way God has designed the ant and the structure of ant society has anything to do with man's social relationship. So you see, the Bible gives you that framework for understanding how to evaluate the data. You get an outside objective view for history, for man, for man's relationships, all of these different things, economics. All of this is rooted, and this is not something new. When you go back into Reformation thought in the 1500s and 1600s, especially if you read the old Puritans, this is exactly what they did. And, of course, you have people like John Locke, who was a uh, philosopher and a political philosopher and whose writings were extremely influential upon people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and others who framed the, the uh, U.S. Constitution. Locke was raised in a Puritan home. The Puritans were self-consciously developing a biblical view of society, law, government, all of these things by going back and digging into Scripture and working out the implications of Scripture. So even though these stories are just, these episodes in Scripture are just there in sort of a skeletal form, they do give us a framework for developing tremendous principles in every single area of life. So that's, in the, that's the beginning with the five books of Torah, the historical books, and then in 931 B.C., the tribes split. There's a civil war uh, Jeroboam in the north leads the ten nations uh, in a tax revolt against Rehoboam in the south. And Jeroboam is one of the first historical revisionists in history. And he has to rewrite the Old Testament because... And, and this is a model for what, what happens earlier in history. Why do people write God out of the picture? Because if God is in the picture, then they no longer have a basis for their existence in the way they want to exist. So the northern kingdom wants to exist independently from the southern kingdom, but if they still believe in the Old Testament law, then there's only one central place to worship, and that's in Jerusalem. And how can you maintain political integrity if every citizen in your country has to go to the other country in order to worship? So he has to rewrite history, one of the first historical revisionists. So 
You see how historical revisionism always serves to serve somebody's purposes. So you have the division of the nation into the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom goes out under divine discipline when they're wiped out by the Assyrians. And then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire. Following that, you have the post-exilic period that's covered by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Job is written during the period of the law. Psalms covers a wide range, wide period. The Solomonic literature written by Solomon in the 10th century B.C., Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are the major prophets. Then you have the minor, and Daniel, then you have the minor prophets, um, the pre-exilic prophets, and then the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The key verse is Exodus 19, 5-6a. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the point of the Pentateuch. God is calling out Israel to be a unique nation, and we're going to see that call this morning when we get into Exodus chapter, I mean Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abram. They are called out to be a kingdom of priests. Israel is designed to be a priest nation among all the nations. It is through Israel that the remaining Gentile nations will be able to come to God and have a relationship with God. So this is our our governing theme. And notice it brings in the idea of kingdom. You will be a kingdom of priests. It is the idea of God's kingdom and the outworking of God's kingdom in human history that is the general theme of the Old Testament. Genesis is divided into four events and four people. The first four events we've covered already. Creation, fall, flood. We'll cover the Tower of Babel a bit this morning. And then four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, the four patriarchs of the nation Israel. Now, in the first three eleven chapters, we see the continuous redemptive work of God to bring about the kingdom. After the fall, Adam and Eve have sinned. They're tempted by Satan to join him in his rebellion against God, and so the creature refuses to acknowledge that he is a creature refuses to bow the knee to God, decides that he is going to define reality on his own terms and on the basis of his own thinking. So man, instead of uh, submitting to an infinite reference point, so to speak, by which he can evaluate all things, decides that he is intelligent enough to be his own authority. So man seeks to build his own kingdom in contrast to God's kingdom. The result is judgment on man, judgment that also includes judgment on nature, on the animals, on plant life. Every facet of nature, every part of the creation is affected by man's decision to sin. But man, most of all, he dies spiritually. He's separated from God. And we see that God begins to do work to recover that situation. Man is... uh, Man falls and man, in terms of male, has a responsibility to till the garden and to work the earth. And now the earth is, is cursed and is antagonistic to him. For the woman who is created to come alongside man to be his assistant and to be part of the operation of, of uh, uh, filling the planet, of populating the planet, now she, her role is cursed so that there's pain associated with childbirth and she wants to usurp the authority of the male. So there is now resistance in every category of life, but God moves in grace. He, he uh, shows them what the basis for sacrifice. He makes clothes for them to cover up their, their sin, the consequences of their sin, and all of this, of course, foreshadows the ultimate provision and the salvation work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we see God's continued work in grace. And then in chapter 4, the principle of sin, the sin nature, is passed on genetically from Adam to his descendants, Cain and Abel, and we see the episode of Cain's murder of Abel. And yet again we see God's grace. God provides another son in Seth, but God also provides protection for Cain. Capital punishment is not instituted at that stage in the human race, so God protects Cain. He's cast out as a nomad, but God puts a mark on Cain to protect him and God does not want anyone to continue any sort of vendetta or vengeance campaign against Cain. So we see grace even in the midst of Cain's sin and rebellion. 
Genesis 5 and 6 covers continuous rebellion, depravity of the human race. We see the um, uh, insertion of the demons, the sons of God, take daughters of men to be their, their wives for two purposes, probably to destroy the genetic purity of the human race and to block out the ultimate salvation, but also because Satan, in his desire to be God, wants to dominate this new race, this created order. In the midst of that, there is God's grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and we see that God is going to execute judgment on the entire human race through a worldwide cataclysm, a worldwide flood, but God is going to deliver a portion of the race and start over, and that comes through Noah and his family. And that brings us down to about where we stopped the last time, which is in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we have the episode of the Tower of Babel. Now, if we're going to understand Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is where God calls out Abram to make a special nation of Abram, we must understand the context. Why all of a sudden is God going to work through a specific individual instead of through the entire race? Up until this time, up until Genesis 11, the human race is homogenous. There are no races. There are no distinctions in language. There is just a homogenous ethnic unity in the human race. It is through the diversification of languages in Genesis chapter 11 that you cause the human race to start to divide up into groups and that in turn uh, leads to the development of languages. Now it's interesting that if we, if we look at the genealogy in Genesis 10, it describes the descendants of the sons of Japheth Sons of Japheth primarily are, are uh, Western European, Northern European. Uh, the Russians all are descendants of Japheth. The sons of Ham would include Africans, uh, Ethiopians, Egyptians, uh, Asians, Indian, um, to some degree probably. Uh, it's hard to tell. But the important thing if you look at the tab- what is called the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, is that it is these historical names that become the, the, the ethnic people group names that are used throughout the rest of the Scripture. So when you get into uh, the prophecies about the future end times in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, they are expressed in terms of the people group names that come out of Genesis 10 and 11. So if you, want to un- if you get into uh, Ezekiel and you start reading about Rosh and Gog and Magog and some of the other terms, in order to understand where that comes from, you have to go back to the uh, origination in Genesis uh, chapter 10. The other thing that we see, if we look at, at uh, Genesis 10, that one of the descendants of Ham was Cush, verse 8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. And the word translated before should be translated against. He is antagonistic to the Lord. He's going to lead another revolt against God. This is the background for understanding what happens at Babel. It says uh, He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter against the Lord. So he is antagonistic to God. And, of course, to understand that antagonism, we have to go back to the principles laid out by God in the Noahic Covenant. See, what I'm doing, just so you don't seem too confused, is each lesson I'm going to pick a core passage. Like last week we looked at Genesis 6. Why did God God have anger against the people? And we had to go back and look at the context. Same thing this time. We're going to pick a core passage, look at what leads up to it, and then what develops from it. So to understand the problem with Nimrod, we have to go back to the ramification or to the principles in the Noahic Covenant. Now the Noahic Covenant is a restatement of the original covenant God makes with Adam, except with a few minor changes. In Genesis chapter nine, verse one, the covenant begins. They're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the key word. They are to fill the earth. They're to spread out. They're to scatter. They are to go out and exercise dominion over the earth as God's representatives once again. It goes back to the idea that we studied in the Suzerain Vassal Treaty form. Man is the vassal to God and he is given the land 
which is the entire earth, and he is to go out and exercise dominion over it. There are some other changes that take place in the Genesis 9 covenant. Man is now going to be a uh, carnivore instead of uh, vegetarian, and there's going to be fear between him, between mankind, and between the beasts, and there is to be the establishment of, of uh, capital punishment. This is given in Genesis 9, 6, and 7. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? In order to uh, uh, deter crime. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that, does it? Uh, in order to uh, um, have vengeance upon these individuals who commit capital crime. Did it say that? No, it doesn't. Now, the reason I bring that up, you've been watching the news this last week. Once again, we have all the... Uh, what I call the whiny crybaby uh, liberals out there who uh, hate the whole concept of capital punishment, usually spearheaded by some defense attorneys. And um, I don't know, I just have a problem sometimes with defense. I understand they have a vital role in the system, and if you ever get accused of a crime, that's the first person you want is a good defense attorney. But uh, I have a real problem with some of these defense attorneys because they never met a guilty person. And so the last thing they ever want to happen, as far as they're concerned, every execution involves a guilty person. I mean, an innocent person. They really didn't commit that crime and we shouldn't take their life. But Scripture says that because man is created in the image of God, and if you presuppose the sin nature and understand the dynamics of the sin nature, what's really going on here is God is saying that a person reaches a certain level of depravity in order to commit murder or to commit certain crimes. And at that stage, they have forfeited the right to life because they have, their soul is so marred and so fragmented now that they do not deserve to live any longer. And because they have taken the life of someone, this, shows, this provides the basis for law, for respect for human life, that every human being, no matter how physically handicapped or marred they might be, every single human being has the right to life. However, if you take the life of another person in terms of murder, this is not in terms of warfare, this is in terms of murder or homicide, then you forfeit the right to life. And this is the basis for establishment of government. So when we go back and we look at the divine institutions in Scripture, we see that God established personal responsibility, human responsibility, back with the mandate, the prohibition in the garden. Then when he created the woman for Adam, he establishes marriage. Then when they have children, you have the institution of family. That's embedded in the command to be fruitful and multiply. You have the institution of marriage. With this covenant, with the Noahic covenant, you have the establishment of human government. That's the basis for this. Because as soon as you de God delegates governing responsibility and judicial decision to the human race, then you have to have some administration. Now, because man is fallen, man is a sinner, God is omniscient. Put that together. God always knew that man would be a sinner. Because man is a sinner, he's going to make wrong decisions. Because man makes wrong decisions, he ultimately will uh, condemn and execute innocent men wrongly for crimes they did not commit. Now, we have to accept the fact that that's going to happen because man is fallen. That does not mean that we don't continue to improve the system. But the point is that God authorizes and mandates capital punishment. This is not an option. This is mandated by God for the survival of a nation and the health of a nation. And God, we, if you believe in God, if you believe God is omniscient, you have to realize that God is not surprised by the fact that men make mistakes in the execution of criminals. But God nevertheless still authorized and mandated capital punishment even though He knew men would make mistakes in the outworking of that principle. So God establishes human government here, but we still don't have the establishment of nations. That doesn't come yet. So we start off with human government. Capital punishment is established here. And Noah and his children are to go out and populate the earth. Now Nimrod comes along and he is a descendant of Ham. Remember it was there was the Noahic curse on Canaan the son of Ham. Ham violated uh, Noah's privacy. There's certainly the suggestion of sexual immorality. And somebody asked me, and there's always somebody comes along and they'll ask the question. They say, well, I've heard somebody teach that when 
uh, Ham came into the tent and saw the nakedness of his father, that that implies some kind of homosexual encounter, incestuous encounter, something like that. And I've heard that too, but that's not in the text. If we're honest and we deal consistently with what the text of Scripture says, there is something to be said about um, the naked body as the, seeing the naked body being a temptation to lust. And so there's this emphasis in, in the Mosaic Law about give, de- keeping the body covered, modesty, all of this is important. And so all we see here, all this suggests, because you have the same terminology in other passages, is that when Ham looks upon his father as naked, it's improper, he treats it lightly, he's showing disrespect for his father, there's the hint of some sort of sexual impropriety, but at the most it is mental, it is not overt. But what it does reveal is the tendencies that will be worked out in his descendants through the Canaanites and their incredible devotion to fertility religions and the phallic cult and the sexual orgies and everything else that went along with it. So it's just a foreshadowing of that event, but there's nothing, uh, there's nothing specific that happens like that in the episode with Ham. But it's one of Ham's descendants, Cush, who's the father of Nimrod, and Nimrod leads this revolt against against uh, the Lord. So in uh, Genesis 10, 9 and 10 we read, It was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord in the beginning of his kingdom. So he's establishing a kingdom. And throughout the Scriptures now you're going to see the conflict between the kingdom of Babel, the kingdom of the of Babylon, is always represents human viewpoint thinking and man's rebellion against God and you have the war of the two cities. Dickens made it popular with Paris and London, the tale of two cities. But in the Bible, the tale of two cities is the antagonism between Jerusalem, the city of God, and Babel, or Babylon, the city of man. And this extends all the way through ancient history, all the way into Revelation. What do you have in Revelation? But the kingdom of the Antichrist is Babylon, the mother of all harlots. So to understand what's happening in Revelation... You have to go back to Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis 11 where you see the beginning of that. So this whole thing develops and you see the unity of the theme throughout Scripture. So he starts the kingdom of Babel and this is developed more fully in the next chapter. This is the stylistic device I mentioned earlier of purling that you have one chapter that summarizes everything and then in the next chapter they come back, they pick one episode up out of that first chapter and then they develop it fully in the next chapter. So you have foreshadowing in chapter 10 and the development in chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. So there's all a unity of language because there's unity of language. Man can get together and he can do more. He can unite against God. And it came about as they journeyed east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. And they build a city. Verse 4, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower and whose top will reach into heaven. And here's the point. Let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They're out, man is out to establish himself in antagonism against God lest we be scattered. What did God say to do? God said to scatter over the earth. So it is a, an episode of rebellion and because of that, this, this, of course, man continues to do throughout history and the latest manifestation is the United Nations and all of the moves and attempts towards globalization that are going on today and all of the treaties and alliances that are taking place and we move more and more towards an internationalism. And with the earth being as populous as it is and with the moves towards computers, which gives us a, another universal language now that through the medium of com- computers you can communicate uh, using computer language, and you don't have to even speak the same language. So all these things work together to unify the human race again, but it is man's attempt to solve man's problems, man's ways. And God will always judge that, and the result of that is always going to be catastrophe. It will never work, and it has never worked. And because of this, God curses man, and He scatters their language. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. This is what they began to do. Verse 7, Come, let us, the plural, third person, or first person plural pronoun indicates the plurality of the Trinity. 
Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, who led this? This is an interesting observation. The person who led this revolt was, was Ham, was a descendant of Ham. It was Nimrod. Now, among the Hamitic languages on the earth, from the various dialects and languages in Africa to Asia to the subcontinent of Asia, India, all of this, there is more diversification, more distinction in the uh, Hamitic languages than in Japhetic languages. In Japhetic languages, you have a lot of similarities between your various Romance languages, and then you have your Anglo-Germanic languages, and there's a certain amount of similarity there. And then when you come to your Semitic languages, the descendants of Shem, Shem the Arabs, the Hebrews, the Akkadians, and, and, and uh, Ugaritic, all these basic languages are very similar. In fact, when you study Semitic languages, they all show a common source, and there's less division among your Semitic languages than the other languages. So that just shows something about or substantiates the Babel episode and, and its outworking. So man is scattered by language and because of language diversification, men are isolated, there are, there's genetic isolation and then the races develop. In the last part of chapter 11, we see God's grace in calling out a special person. Man continues to rebel against God. Man continues to assert his right to rule. He refuses to bow the knee and God works in a very special way. Now, I think that it's in the context of Genesis 11 that polytheism first begins to originate. Polytheism starts to elevate man to a position of God and imputes to all the gods, all the foibles and problems of man. You see that uh, in the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the, of the Greeks and the Romans, they all have the same problem that, uh, that men have. They're, they're lustful, they, they have anger, they're vengeful, they, uh, they have no morals. They're, they, they're just like men. So if you develop a religion and the gods are like that, what do you think the people are going to be like? And so it just deteriorates and it just goes uh, from, from bad to worse in each, each of these particular circumstances. Now, the interesting thing is if you go to school, I'm always fascinated by the, by the amount of information we're not told in public education in America. If you go to school and you... Uh, study sociology, study the history of religion, what you're not told is that everything you're taught is based upon a presupposition of Darwinian evolution. And because Darwinian evolution says that everything goes from uh, a, pr a primitive state to a more advanced state, that obviously polytheism is more primitive than monotheism, so this same principle must apply in the history of religion. And so we're all taught that your more primitive societies all have are polytheistic and your more advanced societies become monotheistic and it's not until you get someone like Akhenaten who was a pharaoh of Egypt about the 13, 1300s, 11th, 12th century B.C. that you get the development of monotheism. Of course, Moses predates all that. Now, what they do, the typical modus operandi of modern academicians is that they just ignore anything that disagrees with their position. No matter how much data there is, don't confuse me with the facts, my mind's made up, They'll just ignore it. That's the best way. And there was a French Jesuit anthropologist at the turn of the century who did a mammoth work. I've seen the original in French. It's six thick volumes. And he investigated. I've got a copy at home of the, of the English translation and abridgment down into one volume. He did a study of primitive, what he called primitive monotheism. And he studied every single culture in, on the earth and traced their religions back to its ultimate origin. And what he discovered was every single religious system known in the history of mankind originated with one God. Now, you will not be taught that anywhere in school. And the best way, of course, that the evolutionists have handled that is they ignore it. And so it's not in print. You can't find it anywhere unless you dig around in some obscure library. But it's never been refuted because it can't. It's just ignored. But yet you, you can pick it up somewhere. You read Greek mythology or Roman mythology and the high god is, that we think of is Zeus or Jupiter. But Zeus and Ju the Zeus-Jupiter character is a subsidiary, secondary god. The original, in the original mythology, there was uh, Uranus or, Ju or uh, uh, Saturn who is the high god. And then the secondary god comes along who's usually the god of war, thunder, flood, water. Notice the, the, just the residual effect of the flood. 
You have the storm god in Canaanite religion. It's Baal who overthrows the, the original god El. El, Elohim, God. So you see the residual effects of the storm god comes along, Baal, and overthrows the high god. It's Jupiter in the Greek, uh, Jupiter and Roman and Zeus in Greek religions. And it's the same thing. But you see this remnant of early monotheism. And this takes place during this Genesis 11 period when man begins to develop alternate gods to substantiate his rebellion against God and he rejects God. And so in the midst of all of this depravity, God has to start his program to establish his kingdom on the earth one more time and he does that by calling out Abram. Now we need to put Abram in some kind of context Let's just read the, uh, read the verses. Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this becomes the outline for the Abrahamic covenant. This isn't the covenant per se. The covenant's not established until Genesis 15. But this is the basic outline and summary of the covenant that God is going to give to Abraham. And it's basically a summary of the rest of the Old Testament and God's plan for bringing salvation to all of the ethnic groups. He is going to do this by working through one man and his descendants, the Jews. And through them, God will provide grace to the rest of the nations. Now, the covenant that is given here is in the form of what's called a royal land grant. We've discovered various secular treaties, and it is interesting to see how the covenants in the, New, in the Old Testament are, are built on and modeled after the secular treaties. And the secular treaty form here is one called the royal land grant, where the king would unconditionally bestow land upon a subject for no reason whatsoever. It may be because of loyalty of service. It may be just because the king wanted to. But the king or a superior just provides a gift or bestows a gift upon a subordinate for whatever reason. It's not necessarily based on prior performance and it's always unconditional in nature. Now that's important because all of the provisions, the blessings, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant have not been fulfilled. If God made those promises unconditionally to Abraham and they haven't been fulfilled, then the implication is that there is yet a future plan for Israel in which God will fulfill those covenant promises made to Abraham originally. Now, what we see here, let's just isolate ourselves, go back and establish ourselves time-wise. What we know in terms of time, we'll draw out our timeline, and when you get into ancient chronology, you must understand, despite the fact that some people are very dogmatic about certain dates, that once we get, once we get past about the 9th or 10th century B.C., it's pretty tenuous. In fact, if you read some older works, and I'm just talking about things written in the 40s and 50s, you'll notice that the dates for, uh, for the northern kingdom going out are 721 instead of, or 722 instead of 721, and uh, Babylon, it's Babylonian uh, exile is, seven, is a 587 instead of 586. The return to the land is 445 instead of 444. And so there's a one-year difference. You get into other dates, and, and I remember reading before I went to seminary, I read a book by Merrill Unger back in the early 70s. I think it was printed in the 40s. And in that, Unger states that the Exodus is like 1441 B.C. Well, now the accepted date among conservatives is 1446 B.C. Because in Archaeology, we're continuously coming up with new information and having to redefine our dates. So anything that goes back beyond about 900 is a little bit tenuous and may be off. That's just a little caveat because you'll hear different dates sometimes off one a year or two from different people and it just has to do with, with how current their scholarship is or who, who they're reading at the moment. Now, if the dates are off by two or 300 years, then other issues come to play. Remember that. Because liberals don't take the Bible verbatim and they don't believe in the numbers of the Bible, they uh, late date everything. Uh, but that's a subject we'll get into later. For now, we'll just look at this basic timeline. 
Here's the cross. So all of this time is B.C. before Christ. Now there's a thousand B.C. to give us a benchmark. What we do know with a fair amount of certainty is that Solomon dedicated the temple in 966 B.C. That's the middle, late half of the 10th century B.C. In 966 B.C., Solomon dedicated the temple. At that time, Solomon stated that it had been 480 years since the Exodus. So from that, we can come up with a fairly sure date that the Exodus occurred at least in the 1440s. Maybe off a year or two, but at least at this time, the date that is accepted by conservatives is 1446. Now, liberals take a date of about... Uh, of the 12th century, 1270s, 1280s, and that's because they disbelieve the biblical numbers, and they think Ramses is the most powerful pharaoh of ancient Egypt, so he must, of course, have been the pharaoh of the Exodus. So the next time you watch the Ten Commandments, remember that's based on a liberal chronology. Ramses II was probably not, was not only not the pharaoh of the Exodus, uh, I believe that most Egyptian chronology today that is standard is off by as much as three or four hundred years. There's a great book by a guy named David Roll written for popular consumption called Pharaohs and Kings. We saw some of the videos we tried to show them last year here that were done for the Discovery Channel, but he demonstrates that there are some tremendous uh, gaps in Egyptian chronology and overlaps that should be there that aren't there, and so there's some real mistakes. And that's the other problem. If you accept... uh, If you accept what secular Egyptology has come up with as absolute, then you're going to try to identify the pharaoh of Egypt with probably Amenhotep IV, the Sutmose III, that the mother of of Moses was Hatshepsut. We'll get into that later when we get to the Exodus event. But just a little foreshadowing, that's probably not true. We can't identify that because Egyptian chronology is based upon about three assumptions, two of which are fallacious, I think. And so many conservatives now, and uh, we have some guys in the doctrine among some doctrinal churches. There's a guy, Dr. Glenn Carnegie, down he's down in Texas now. He had a little seminary in Tulsa for a while, and his son got his Ph.D. in um, in archaeology from the University of Chicago, which is the premier archaeological school in the country. And um, I've talked with Glenn extensively about some of these things, and he thinks David Rolls got an excellent case for revising Egyptian chronology, but of course most Egyptian uh, Egyptologists don't go along with it. But the Bible clearly states, and one thing about Rolls' thesis is that he accepts the biblical date of 1446 B.C. for the Exodus. Most Egyptologists don't accept biblical dates and numbers at all. Their presupposition is therefore at its core anti-biblical. So Exodus occurs in 1446. Um, The book of Exodus tells us that the deliverance takes place 430 years after the entrance into the land. So that places the entrance of Jacob into the land around 1876 B.C. That means that Isaac was born in 2066 B.C., and Abram was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So this places the birth of Abram about 2166 B.C. 2166 B.C. And I think that we can be fairly sure within within plus or minus 50 or 100 years that that's probably a fairly accurate time. Now the thing there is sometimes... Older archaeologists and older... When I mention these things, I'm, of course, talking about conservatives. I'm talking about biblical conservatives, people like Merrill Unger and some others that were at Dallas Seminary, some other conservatives who buy into that, were placing Abram in the third dynasty of Ur. But now it's pretty clear that Abram was born in... If he was born in 2166, which is a standard accepted date by conservatives now, then that is before the third dynasty of Ur came... To, to pass, uh, Abram was born in a time of unrest in Ur of the Chaldees. They had been overrun by the Judean Empire, and it's probably why Terah, his father, decided to move the family away from Ur. Very possible that his father was part of some kind of aristocracy, though, because Abram's name, Av, 
It's from the Hebrew father, Ram indicates mighty, and it would refer to Abram's father as mighty father. So that would indicate something about uh, Avram being a member of aristocracy. And of course, when we look at what's going on in the scriptures later on, he's an incredibly wealthy man, probably one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. He has enough wealth to amass his own army, and when the five kings of the east invade the land, it is Avram and his servants who amass an army of over 300. He has, that means there's over 300 employees working for him, and they go out and they defeat the army of the kings, the five kings of the east. So that's just some interesting background to put uh, Abram, Avram, into his uh, historical context. Now, in Genesis 12.1, we see the separation of one man. Yahweh, the Lord, says to Avram, Lech lecha, go forth, leave your country and your relatives and your father's house. So he is to leave all of the uh, influences upon him, his social background. We know from, uh, from uh, Joshua that Abram and his family uh, or came out of a family that were polytheistic. They worshipped the gods of the moon and the gods of the stars. Yet, Avram seems to have some tradition of the worship of the one true God. And so, God calls him out to leave all of these influences, these worldly influences around him. And God is going to start a new plan with, with Avram. And he has to separate him from all of these other influences. And so, he moves him out to uh, a new land in Canaan where he will live as a, as a Bedouin. He will move about. He will not have a permanent home for the rest of his life. He will spend uh, approximately the next 90 years living in a tent, moving from place to place. So the first thing that God does is to call him out, to separate him, and God is going to begin a new program through one individual. Then in Genesis 12:2, we see the second stage of the promise. After separating one man out, God promises that through him he is going to make a great nation. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Notice the contrast. What happened in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel? We are going to go out and make a great name for ourselves through unification and rebellion against God. And what does God do in contrast to man's attempt to build his own kingdom? God is going to call out and begin to establish his kingdom through one man, a new nation, and it is Avram's name that will be great throughout human history and not the name of, of Nimrod and the rebels at the Tower of Babel. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And then at the end, he says, he says, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, if we look at that in the English, it, it sounds like it's going to be a result. That because I make your name great, as a result of that, you'll be a blessing. But that's not what it means in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it is an imperative verb. You will be a blessing, Abram. This is a command. Because I will bless you, and because uh, I will make your name great, your responsibility is to bless others. And Abram, of course, fulfills that because when the kings of the east invade the land and they uh, conquer the cities of the plains, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities, it is Abram, Avram, who gathers together an army of his own servants and he goes out and he defeats the kings of the east and all of the booty, all the plunder that they took, he returns to its rightful owners, so he is a blessing to the Gentiles around him. And that is, that is the beginning. Genesis 12.3, God says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now this is very interesting in the Hebrew, because in English it looks like it, we use the same word both times in that phrase, curse and curse. But in the Hebrew you have two different words. The first word should be translated, the one who curses you, should be translated, the one who treats you lightly, the one who treats you indifferently. It's not an active cursing, it is just simply ignoring or treating lightly. And of course, this has its ultimate fulfillment in the person who rejects Christ, who ignores Christ, who treats the death of Christ lightly. The one who curses you, the one who treats you lightly, I will curse, aurora, I will uh, bring a curse upon them and discipline them. And then he says, and in you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we see in Genesis 1-3 through is the outline of the three great provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. And whenever you think of the Abrahamic covenant, you should think of three things. Land, seed, and blessing. God's going to give him a land. He's going to make his name great through his descendants, his seed, which ultimately refers to Jesus Christ. And he will make him a blessing to all the Gentile nations. The covenant is with Avram. It is not with the Gentiles. But it is through Avram that all the Gentiles will be blessed. And of course, that comes through the spiritual blessing of the cross. It is through the cross that all are brought to salvation. Gentiles and Jews alike are brought into the family of God. So we have the separation of one man. He leaves Ur, which is, this is a map of the, of the area, the, this little blue area of water down here is the tip of the Persian Gulf. And here is Babylon, and Avram leaves Babylon, goes up to Haran, and he doesn't follow God's, he doesn't follow God's command totally. He takes his father and his nephew with him. He doesn't leave his family completely. He has to spend some time in Haran until his father dies, and then, then eventually obeys God and ends up in Canaan, where he travels, lives in a tent for the remainder of his life. So God calls out one man, and these are the travels of Abraham. Second, we see there's a separation where God is going to build a nation, the nation of Israel, in the midst of a nation, the Canaanite nation. Now, let's look at the line of the seed, or we'll put that off a minute. I want to cover a few things. The synopsis that you get from, I mean, what you get from the Abrahamic covenant is a synopsis of the rest of the Old Testament. This lays the groundwork for the founding of the nation, the formation of the nation, the preparation of the nation, and then the ultimate fortune of the nation. That's the outline of the whole Old Testament is right here in Genesis 12, 1-3, that God will make Abram's descendants a blessing to all of the other nations. And that works itself out historically. Now, we saw our time frame that this is about 2166 B.C. when Abram is born. So we'll just use as a, as a round figure 2000 B.C. as the time period of Abraham and the patriarchs. Let's get a little historical background so we know who the major players are at that time. What was it like for Abraham to, to be alive 2000 B.C., four millennia ago, as he was on the verge of going into the... Um, from the 3rd millennium B.C. into the 2nd millennium B.C. This is what archaeologists call Middle Bronze One. Middle Bronze One. most people didn't have iron or steel yet. They were operating with, they were still in the Bronze Age. And they, there are three great civilizations. There's the Babylonian civilization, the Egyptian civilization, and the Canaanite civilization. There's been an ebb and flow. Babylon is located in... Uh, Put our map back up here. Babylon is located around Nineveh, Babylon, this area. You have the Sumerian Empire. You have the under the Akkadian Empire under Sargon I. You have the Egyptian Empire, which is down here off the map on your lower left. And then you have a Canaanite Empire developing here. And there are there's an ebb and flow in all of these civilizations. But the technology and the art is very sophisticated in these civilizations. These are not primitive groups. In fact, there's aspects of their technology that we cannot duplicate today. We do not know how the Egyptians were able to build the pyramids with the tools that they had available to them. So they have had a very different technology. I think that it's very possible that, uh, especially if you take the, the genealogical record exactly, Shem is still alive when Abram is called out. Noah dies just a few years before Abram's birth. So you have the descendants, the sons of Noah and his grandsons are still alive. Now the sons of Noah would have brought with them from the antediluvian world an antediluvian technology. Not only that, they were still living three or four hundred years. So they had all of that time to amass a tremendous amount of experience. So they were able to build the pyramids. They were able to do these great works of civilization at that time. But their descendants did not live as long 
and they were they got caught up in more and more idolatry, which brings with it demonism, and you saw the perversion and the decline and the decadence as well as the dispersion of the nations of the Tower of Babel. So the, te- the technology that Noah and his sons brought with them from the antediluvian world is quickly lost. But yet there is a remnant in these civilizations. In Babylon, they're very advanced in their art. They have representational art at this time. It is uh, uh, very advanced, especially if you look at some of the things that are in the British Museum. Uh, I've seen some, some other things down at the um, Museum of uh, Fine Arts in, in New York at the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, just some fantastic artwork that the ancient Akkadian civilization was able to to develop. So you have this advanced Babylonian civilization. They have uh, a vast amount of literature. In fact, in an area north of there, up in this particular area, north of Aleppo, right up in here, you had the discovery in the early 70s of Ebla. And the civilization at Ebla and the major library there, which had over over um, uh, five to 10,000 pieces of literature written in cuneiform on clay tablets. It doesn't specifically establish any of events in the scriptures, but there are indications of a lot of biblical names. Not that they refer to biblical characters, but they just substantiate the fact that these are common names of that period. Names like Abram and Isaac, Jacob, that these were common names at that time. And this was in that area. So they had a... These civilizations are quite sophisticated and quite advanced. The Egyptian civilization is advanced technologically. I mentioned already when uh, Abram went down to Egypt. The pyramids were already there. The Sphinx was there. All of that was already in place and already been built. The uh, Egyptians had discovered and mapped out the entire circulatory system in the human body, something that wasn't really rediscovered until Harvey rediscovered it in, what was it, the 19th, 19th century. So, But along with all of that, they were steeped in uh, polytheism. They... Uh, deified the pharaoh. They worshipped the dung beetle, the frog, the lice, flies. They, uh, did, they had a view of reality that did not separate matter from the, from the immaterial or spirit. So all matter had a divine spirit within him. So they deified creation. This is what Romans 1 is talking about when it talks about how man went through this progressive decline and ended up worshipping the uh, creature rather than the creator. It is talking historically about the decline and deterioration that took place after the flood. So this is why they worship stars, they worship plants, they worship the elements, is because they have deified all of the elements. Egyptian mythology, there's a flood epic. In Babylonian mythology, there's a flood epic. And what you see is that the gods are just like people. They, they, in fact, in the Babylonian flood epic, the reason for the flood is because the people have grown too many, they're too noisy, they're partying all the time, we can't sleep. We need some rest. Let's go kill them all. And so you see this very decadent view uh, of, of the gods. And if the gods are lazy, adulterous thieves, then what do you think the people are going to be like? So it just gets worse and worse. And the Canaanite religion is the worst of all of them. They have given themselves over completely to the phallic cult, to uh, fertility worship, and the most depraved forms of sexual perversion possible. So it is out of this context that God calls out Abram and he makes a covenant with Abram and he is going to establish a new plan through his uh, descendants. And so we come to the line of the seed. This will take us up. I just want to give you the overview. We'll come back and look at this in more detail next time. Abram is called out. Abraham is the covenant name that God gives him, father of the multitude. He marries Sarah. But because she doesn't give birth right away, they get impatient and they substitute man's solution uh, for man's problem. And they have a son, Abraham and Hagar have a son, Ishmael, and he is the father of the Edomites uh, who become part of the Arabs. And that ultimately ends up in the Arab-Israeli conflict. The seed goes through the promised son, Isaac, who marries Rebekah. They have twins, Esau and Jacob. Isaac is a believer. Ishmael is not a believer. Esau is not a believer. Yaakov is a believer. So it is through the line of regeneration. Remember, not all Israel is Israel. It is through the line of regeneration that the true nation develops. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob uh, goes back to uh, Mesopotamia to find a wife among his relatives. He's deceived by his father-in-law, and he uh, he gets uh, Leah hidden behind the veil instead of the woman he loved, Rachel. He marries Leah. Leah gives him four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel gets jealous. I mean, it's like watching some soap opera. Rachel gets jealous of Leah because Leah has had children. And so she tells Jacob, well, you take my handmaiden. See, it's a repetition of the same problem with Sarah and Hagar. You take my handmaiden and you have children with her in my name. So he has relations with Bilhah. She has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And then, then Leah comes along and says, well, if you're going to use your handmaiden, I'll use mine. So Jacob, you, you uh, go with Zilpah. And from Zilpah, he had two more sons, Gad and Asher. And then uh, Leah had two more, Issachar and Zebulun. And then finally, God blessed Rachel and she had Joseph and Benjamin. These become the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph is supplanted, though, by uh, his two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Levi is taken out of the equation as the priest tribe, and that's where you end up with your twelve tribes of Israel. And this is the outline of the rest of Genesis. From Genesis 12 down through Genesis 50, you have the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the twelve sons of Jacob. And it is this, you see, how God is going to work out His plan to establish His kingdom on the earth, a kingdom of priests, who will be the solution to uh, the problem of sin in the human race and through which God will ultimately reestablish His kingdom on the earth. We'll come back and look at this next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the way we look at history through Your eyes and we see how You are continuously intervening in history to bring about your plans and your purposes. Father, that you have from eternity past understood man's problem of sin and provided a perfect solution. And you have worked that out in human history, culminating in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we have salvation in Jesus Christ, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, Father, we just commit this time to you and ask that you would Help us to understand these things that we might better understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.